When I was an ag student, a uh, financial planner came to the college to share to us with us all about the benefits of superannuation and planning for our retirement and, and he extrapolated all the figures and he showed us that by putting a little bit away each week that uh, by, by the time we reached the age of retirement, um, we'd be able to afford to retire. Anyway, this got one of my mates thinking and um, after the session he went back to his dorm and he got his calculator out and he sat down at his desk and started tapping away figures and working a few things out. And after a while he came out and he said, you know, Michael, I've worked it out. I've got a plan. All I have to do is get my dad to put $15,000 into superannuation for me now. And that way, when I'm ready to retire, it'll be worth over a million dollars. He had it all worked out. His retirement wasn't going to cost him a cent. Um, it was just going to cost his dad $15,000 and he was serious. He was going to go home and try and talk his dad into it. Um, he had it all worked out. He was 17 years old and his retirement was already fully planned. You know, I thought I had my life all figured out too when I was at ag college because all I ever wanted to be was a farmer. There I was, I was at Ag College, yep, that's uh, I was doing okay at Ag College and so the next step was I was going to go home and work on the family farm and then one day I was going to inherit Tanombi and that's where I was going to die. I had it all worked out. Obviously not everything went according to plan. My wife on the other hand, well she didn't have everything figured out but she did have one thing figured out, no way on this earth was she ever going to be married to a minister. How's that going for you, Robin? She thought she was safe when she married a farmer. Not everything worked out for her either. Today's message is about the sovereignty of God. It's about how when we make our plans, what part does God figure into those plans? And does the Lord have the right to change them? God is king God is sovereign, and if our Heavenly Father is our King, how does His kingship, how does His lordship, how does His rule, how does His reign impact on our lives and our plans? I've asked Justin if Justin would be willing to share a little bit of his family story, and he's going to do that now. Thanks, Justin. G'day. Um, yeah, like, like Michael said, I, um, I was going to be a farmer as well. And uh, I grew up on a place at Dolby. And um, yeah, when I got to about 17, halfway through year 12, Dad said, oh, by the way, I don't want you back on the farm until you've either got a trade or a degree. So I said, yeah, right, eh? So uh, halfway through year 12, I thought, well, my grades aren't quite good enough to get into uni. Let's see what I can do in the last six months. And um, just scraped in, got to be an engineer um, and... In my third year at, at um, university, the, the farm got sold. Um, and so I guess my plans got changed as well. Um, but Michael actually wanted me to share on, on my dad and my pop. Um, so we lost the farm not, not by choice. Um, we were sort of forced out. And um, so for pop, um, he was a very proud man. And when he was four, he'd come up on a truck from Victoria. Um, they settled on a dairy farm just out side of Dolby near the Bunny Mountains um, and so everything I guess we had Pop had worked for he, um, him and my grandma Colleen had bought the farm and they developed it and, and they'd built everything and he was, he was really proud of what he'd done 
um, and then that was um, taken away. Um, and for me, watching Pop go through that, it was it was tough. You know, he's a really proud man, and, and to watch it disappear. Um, but reflecting on that now, um, it's amazing the change that even though Pop had lost everything, I think he's gained everything now. Um, and in that, I mean that back then it was really important to, to be successful and, and to have the property and, and to show that you can make it in life. Whereas now, Pop's more proud of, of his love with his new wife. He's more proud of his grandkids and his great-grandkids um, and then knowing Jesus. And, and materialistic issues aren't a problem for Pop anymore, not because he has it, but because he's, he's had it all taken away. And he just thanks God every day for what he does have. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's been an amazing transition for me because Pop even says now that unless he lost it all, he would never have gained that knowledge. Um, he'd still be, you know, thinking that, that he was the one who'd made it all um, and not knowing that, um, you know, having the reality that, that it's all given by Christ and he'll take it away and when he wants. And it's more important to know him and to love him than, than anything else. Um, my dad's also an interesting story. So he went to, straight out of school, he went to seminary college down Adelaide um, and he met my mum and uh, he, he couldn't bear the thought of preparing a sermon every week. So about halfway through his um, seminary college, he gave up and he brought his new wife back to the farm and, and yeah, that's obviously where, where I come into the picture. Um, it's just interesting that, you know, reflecting to dad now, he obviously had a call to be in ministry um, but when he got tied up in the farm, it was like he, he either didn't want to hear it or, or what, that the God was actually calling him to be a minister. Um, and so for Dad, it was nearly like he had to be pushed off the farm before he eventually ended up going back and finishing his study where he's now pastor out in Alice Springs. Um, so it was just interesting that, you know, even though he wasn't, you know, the, the farm he'd built and everything, but it wasn't until God really got his attention and took everything away that he realised what, what God was calling him to do, so... Anyway, that's a bit of my story. Thanks for that, Justin. I asked Justin to share that bit about his family story because I want to make this real for you lot. You see, there's a danger when we pastor minister types get up and and start telling our story um, because most other people just turn off. (laughs) Not not because it's boring, although it might be boring too, but but because you might feel, hey, that's not relevant for me. See, it's all very good and nice for me to share how I had my plans and dreams and ambitions to go farming and how God took all that away. And of course, I could tell you how in hindsight, God obviously had a very different purpose for me to go to Bible college and become a full-time minister and then to leave a thriving church and, and plant a bunch of other little churches around the place from scratch. Now, I could tell that whole story again and you might probably agree, yeah, wow, God was really at work through all of that. But you'd probably also dismiss it as, well, that's, that, that's relevant for you, but not relevant for me. See, sometimes we, we feel that there's two levels of calling. There's, there's two sorts of Christians. You know, we feel that there's, there's those who are called to full-time ministry and, and they're the special people. You know, they're the preachers and the pastors and the missionaries and the chaplains and, and, you know, they're really special because they actually do hear God and, and, and do alter their lives to follow Him. But then there's the rest of us. Yeah, you know, sometimes we feel that way. And so if I tell my story about how I had my plans and God diverted me from them, you might be just as likely to say, yep, well, that's for that type. 
But God's not going to call me to be a pastor. God's not going to call me to be a minister. And so God's not likely to divert my plans like what he diverted those other people's plans. And we act as if God doesn't lead and direct all of us. And that's just so wrong. We act as if the only people that God is going to lead and direct are those that he's calling into some special kind of full-time ministry. What a nonsense. The point is the Lord has a plan and a purpose for every one of us. The Lord has a plan and a purpose for you. The Lord has a plan and a purpose for me. And he only reveals his plan to us one step at a time. You know, I'm the sort of person, if you look at personality types, if anybody's ever done any study on those, Robin and I are both a very similar personality type. We like to have all of the plans laid down. Right, we're going to do this, and then the next step is that, and we're going to do that, and this is going to be the direction. But the problem is the Lord only shows one step at a time. And so we start making our plans as to where we're going to go, but the Lord goes, well, that's a nice plan. Pity I'm sending you this way. And then we get to, keeps taking us this other way. And so the Lord demands that we be open to his leading and his direction and that our plans are always subject to his revision and to his sovereign will. And that's whether you're in ministry or that's whether you're a worker or whether you're a school kid, Our plans have to always be subject to his revision and his sovereign will. A few weeks ago, Justin preached on wisdom and about how godly wisdom isn't just about knowing stuff, it's about obedience to our heavenly father. And he quoted Charles Stanley, who said, earthly wisdom is doing what comes naturally. Now, to a lot of us, what comes naturally is this, it includes this good, honest planning planning a career, a business plan, a plan for who we're going to get married and how many kids we're going to have, a plan for our kids' education, going to plan for our retirement. Now, that's good natural wisdom, worldly wisdom. Godly wisdom is doing what the Holy Spirit compels us to do. Justin also said wisdom equals lifestyle, all right? It's not just about what we believe, it's about how we live. Am I living a wise life? Uh, Is my life reflecting godly wisdom? Now, that's very much the drive of this letter of James. Very practical sort of a letter it is. And so a life of godly wisdom means that our plans are always subject to God's sovereign will. Worldly wisdom would have us revising our plans periodically. But as disciples of Jesus, our plans and even our current circumstances must always be open for immediate adjustment because God is king. And as our king, he has every right, no matter how marvellous my planning might be, the Lord has every right to screw those plans up and throw them in the rubbish bin. Some of the men are currently doing a, a Bible study, uh, experiencing God, knowing and doing the will of God. And in that, Henry Blackaby says, you cannot stay where you are and go with God. Now, that's not just a location thing. Um, it's meaning if God is taking you on in your spiritual journey, you can't stay where you are. You've got to go with him. 
He also says adjusting your life to God is another turning point. If you choose to make the adjustment, you can move on to obedience. If you refuse to make the adjustment, you will miss what the Lord has in store for your life. For most of last year, I was preaching my way through the book of Acts. And something that I noticed was time and time again, people would have plans. Okay, and they did their best to, to seek God and know what these plans were going to be. I'm going to go to such and such a place and we're going to conduct some ministry there and then we're going to go on to this place and then on to this place. And the Lord would then step in and take them in a very different and a very unexpected direction. But here was the thing. Because they were willing to drop their plans and to follow this new direction that the Lord was taking them in, Wow, God did the most amazing things. And if you can't remember what those amazing things were, just read the book of Acts again and see what God does when people listen to him. See what the Lord does when people start changing their plans to start following God. And you know what? That makes me wonder, what kinds of amazing things will the Lord do through us What kinds of amazing things will the Lord do through this little church in this district if only each and every one of us were willing to make the major adjustments to our lives so that we can obediently follow Jesus? I really like the way James actually talks about this from a business point of view rather than a ministry point of view. You see, James is such a tremendously practical letter. It's so easy, it's not so easy for us to dismiss it as being irrelevant. It's relevant for every one of us. It's very easy for those of us who are in a business or for those of us who have a career to understand what James is saying. In fact, it's easy for any of us who have any kind of a plan any kind of hope or ambition or dream that we're working towards trying to fulfill in our lifetime, it's easy for us to understand what James is saying. It's really short. I'm going to read it again. And just remember, you're someone who has a hope and a dream and a plan for your life. And James is speaking to us. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So... Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. He takes it from a business perspective. Anyone involved in business these days really has to have some kind of a plan. If you go to the bank trying to get a little bit of finance, see how far you get without having a few years of cash flow budgets to, to give them and, and have a bit of a, you need to have a bit of a business plan. You need to be able to state where you're going, what you're planning for, what you're hoping to achieve. So let me ask you a question. Is James telling us 
that as a Christian, it is wrong for us to make plans. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying. Is he saying that it's wrong to make a profit? Is he? No, that's not what he's saying either. What James condemns is the arrogance of certitude. It is arrogant to be certain of our future because such certainty elevates us to the position of God. Who knows your future? Do you know your future? No, you don't. The Lord knows your future because your future is in his hands. If I have the the attitude of this is where I'm going, this is what I'm going to do, this is where my life is headed, I'm going to set these goals and I'm going to achieve them. Arrogance. How could I possibly know where I'm going to be a year from now when I mightn't even live until tomorrow? James is warning us about having a certainty to our plans that closes off any possibility that the Lord in his sovereignty will direct us to something entirely different. He may even cut our life short. The Lord has that right. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with the fact that God has the right to cut your life short? James says, what is your life? You're like a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. That is so true. But so many of us live as if it's not. We all know that life is short, hey? Yep. The research is now in. It's been confirmed. 100% of Australians will die. There you go. There's a statistic you can count on. Unless, of course, Jesus comes back beforehand. But we want to be more significant than a vanishing mist. And so we do everything that we can to stretch our lives out. Did you know that our governments are really worried about how our nation and our health system can cope under the strain of an ageing population trying to squeeze a few more weeks or days out of life? See, this this present physical life is often seen as the most valuable thing and we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical care in the last week of a person's life. Now, we want to do our best to, to look after those we love. But you know, this wanting to hold on to life so, so much is actually sending our country broke. Um, it's accumulating a debt that our children and our grandchildren will suffer under the burden of that debt just so people like you and I can squeeze an extra week or two out of life. Uh, Scrivo has a saying, he's not here today, but he has a saying, cemeteries are full of people who the world can never live without. He says that, doesn't he? Yep. See, the worldly perspective is I am so significant. But the godly perspective on life is one of humility. One of the biggest challenges for us as disciples of Jesus today is to get rid of this feeling of self-importance that we have. 
And to get back to the biblical understanding of life, my earthly life is like a mist. I'm here for a little while. And I thank God for every day that I have that I'm here. But a mist, it appears for a while and then it's gone. And I'll be gone. You'll be gone. Paul talked about it in terms of treasure inside of jars of clay. The physical end life ends like a jar of clay that breaks. And this jar of clay, it eventually breaks down back into the dust from which it came. But inside we have this something which is much more valuable than this. We have this eternal treasure, a soul that is resurrected to a new eternal life. And many of us need to learn godly humility. Our physical life is not as precious as we like to think. You know, psychology would tell us that we need to increase people's self-esteem. Did you notice, as I read the Gospels, I don't see anywhere where Jesus used to do that. Jesus didn't used to try and increase people's personal self-esteem. What he did was he taught us to look beyond ourselves. He taught us to seek first the kingdom of God. You see, our worth is not found in who we are on this earth. Our worth is found in Christ and it is an eternal worth. It is something that is not like a vapour of steam that just disappears. And when we begin to understand this and, and when we begin to live with this understanding, our plans will not seem quite so important. In fact, our primary plan will be to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then we'll see that the Lord will look after everything else that we need. So let's humble ourselves a bit. The Lord is king. We are his servants. And we might make our plans and and intend for them to stretch out for 10, 20, maybe even 40 or 50 years. But we don't even know really what's going to happen tomorrow. As soon as I read this passage, I instantly thought of a parable that Jesus told about a really good farmer. Um. He grew this marvellous crop. The yield was so much, he had so much grain coming in, he didn't know what to do with it all. And he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And I'll fill them up and I'll store all of this stuff and, and then I'll be able to sit back and take it easy. And I'll be able to eat, drink and be merry. God said to him, fool. Don't you know you're going to die tonight? Who's going to get everything that you've accumulated then? And he thought that he'd made this marvellous plan and he had it it all set, but it was an empty plan. It was a meaningless plan. And so James says we should say, if the Lord wills, this is my plan. And, of course, it's not just a matter of words. God's not interested in our words. The Lord is interested in our heart. He's interested in our actions. Are my plans, are the things that I plan to do subject to the sovereignty of God? When when we first moved to St George, um, there had been a string of ministers here, um, mostly for quite short terms. Some of them only a month or two, 
maybe one or two of them were for a bit longer than that, six months or up to a year. And so I was constantly asked when I arrived, so how long are you going to be here? And I just kept getting asked that and they didn't know I was supposed to be like the permanent minister. But the thing is, in the denomination that I was in, even a permanent minister, well, usually they leave after, in the first settlement, only three years, um, but then maybe five or maximum of ten. Um, but even after I'd been here for years, and even now, people still ask me, so how long are you going to be here? And I would say to them the same answer that I that I still give to people today. Look, I'm happy to be buried in St George. Um, I'm happy to stay here for the rest of my life. But if the Lord says to me tonight that it's time to go, then I must obey him immediately. As disciples of Jesus, that's what the Lord requires of all of us. Jesus said to the fishermen, come, follow me. And they left the nets and the boats. I remember, I like the story of Elijah and Elisha, calling Elisha. And Elisha was, it it resonates with me because I'm from a farming background. And and here's Elisha, he's out farming. I forget how many bullocks he had, was it 10? I forget. But but the equivalent, that's that's a massive tractor. That's a massive tractor. And he had his plough and he's ploughing away and Elijah comes along and says, right, it's time to come. And you know what he did? He didn't just get up and leave. He killed his bullocks and he burnt the plough to cook the bullocks. It was sort of like, okay, God's called me to something different now. I won't be coming back to this, will I? Now you understand this, don't you? You know that the right thing to do is when the Lord calls you to to serve him in some way, when he calls you to take a different direction or a different path in life, you know that the right thing to do is to be obedient to God. It's not hard to understand. You understanding this? Put your hand up if you understand what this is saying. Right? Okay, good. Here's the crunch. Verse 17 says, whoever knows the right thing to do, now that's all you lot, because you just told me you know, uh, and fail to do it, that is sin. Now sometimes we sort of start thinking, well, this is where the Lord's leading me, but it doesn't really matter if I don't do it. This is what the Lord is calling me to do, but, oh, I've never done anything like that before. Uh, I think I just won't do it this time. If I know the right thing to do and I don't do it, I'm sinning against God. Discipleship is not only about not doing the wrong things. Discipleship includes doing the right things. It's about adjusting our lives and our plans. It's about putting our hopes and our dreams and ambitions on the altar of sacrifice to follow Jesus. You see, Jesus gave up everything for us. He gave up everything. He he humbled himself. He left his home in, in the heavenly realms. He came to be born in the most humble of circumstances. 
And then he allowed himself by his creation to be mocked and spat upon and beaten and scourged and nailed to a cross. Jesus gave up everything for us. And we're going to be remembering that a little bit later when we share communion together. And he requires us to give up everything to follow him. That's not a very popular message today. Most messages, you know, most evangelical messages you hear today might be, come to Jesus and, and he's going to set your life right. But there's also a lot of giving up that we have to do. Jesus said, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. What does it mean to give up everything that we have? Does it mean that I have to go and sell everything I have and give away? No, that's not what it means. Unless the Lord tells you that's what it means for you. He did say that to a certain man in the Bible, the rich young ruler, and he couldn't accept that and he walked away. What it means is we say, Lord, I give you everything that I have and everything that I am, even all of my hopes and my plans and my dreams and ambitions, and I lay them all at the foot of your cross and I make them subject to your will. You change my plans, Lord. I give up everything I have to be your disciple. Are you willing to give up your plans for Jesus? What does God want you to do? And maybe he's been prompting you about this for years. But it hasn't fitted into your plans. And so you've gone, well, God can't be calling me to do that because he's called me to do this. These are my plans And so you've discounted it. You you know, most of us would like to think that God will only have us serve him how we want to serve him. And there's a fair bit of teaching around that sort of encourages that thought. I'm just going to be blunt and say, that's a load of rubbish. I'm going to tell you that the Lord will take you places that you never wanted to go. I'm going to tell you that the Lord will have you doing things that you never wanted to do. And I'm also going to tell you he'll bless you every step of the way. There's no greater blessing than to be living in obedience to God. Even when it's not something that you ever wanted to do. Or we might feel that the Lord will only call us to do what we know we can achieve. God does the exact opposite. Uh, Something else we've been learning in our Experiencing God Bible study is God calls us to God-sized assignments. Because if we only do the things that we know that we can do, people, the world will see these things getting done and go, oh, aren't they a wonderful group of people? But if we start doing the things that God has called us to, even though the things that we have no ability to achieve them, if we start doing things that only God can do, who gets the glory? God. You'll give God the glory. There's no way that I could have ever done this. That was all God. 
God gets the glory and we will know that God has visited us and God has done something wonderful in our midst. So what does God want you to do that has not been part of your plans? What is it? Does he want you to teach RE? Maybe out in one of the little schools in the bush? Does he want you to start a Bible study group? Does he want you to just get together with one other person who is not a Christian and, and invite them to hey, do you want to meet once a week and we'll just read a, cha- read a chapter of the Bible together? Is the Lord calling you to go to Bible college and to go into a full-time ministry? Or is he just asking you to take one day a week off of work so that you can take that day to go and visit others and share with them the love of Jesus? Forgoing that one day of income just so that you can go and share Jesus with people who you know but who never have Jesus shared with them. What does God want us as a church to do? Does he want us to plant more churches? You know, when we first began, we start, tried starting off in a whole bunch of little towns and some of them never took off. But what? But four did. We planted four little churches and they're going. But what, does God want us to plant some more in different places? Does he want some of us here? to be going out on mission and and to be doing some of that planting in places where there's little or no Christian influence. What does God want us to be doing that is bigger than our plans? Because you can be certain that what the Lord wants us to do is bigger than our plans. You think you can dream big? You wait till you see what God leads you to dream about. And are our plans that we make subject to change because as our king, God has the sovereign right to change them?